This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, July 28th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. With Robert Mueller's testimony to Congress in the rearview mirror, Democrats are now even more divided about how or if they should move ahead with impeachment proceedings against President Trump. These people are clowns. The Democrats are clowns. They're being laughed at all over the world. Will the political noise distract from the serious warnings from Mueller about Russia's election meddling? They're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it during the the next campaign. Plus, there are new developments on immigration as the Supreme Court gives Mr. Trump the go-ahead with his plan to divert military funds in order to build his wall between the U.S. and Mexico. And he announces a controversial agreement with Guatemala to force people traveling through that country to seek asylum there instead of the U.S. Breaking this weekend, the president launches a Twitter attack on another minority member of Congress and his home district in Baltimore. This time, the target is Elijah Cummings, a powerful committee chairman who's criticized the administration's handling of detention center conditions. Come on, man. What's that about? We'll talk with acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner. Then, ahead of the second round of Democratic primary debates, we'll talk to two candidates who got a bump from the last one. Former San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro and self-help author Marianne Williamson. National security correspondent David Martin looks at the buildup of U.S. forces in the Persian Gulf. And we'll have analysis on all the news of the week, just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin with acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Good morning, Mick. Good to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. The president has tweeted 13 times in the past 24 hours about Congressman Elijah Cummings. I want to read the first tweet. He said, why is so much money sent to the Elijah Cummings district when it's considered the worst run and most dangerous anywhere in the United States? No human being would want to live there. Where's all the money going? How much is stolen? Investigate immediately. What is the objective of this? Uh, To push back against what the president sees as inaccuracies, lies, about uh, what Mr. Cummings said this week in the Oversight Committee about the border. If you go on the Internet, you can find the exchange where Elijah Cummings said that children were, were sitting in their own feces at the border. That's wrong. In fact, it's misleadingly wrong. It, it's the type of thing that really breaks down a civilized debate about how to address the, uh, the, the crisis at the border. And the president didn't like it. Does the president speak hyperbolically? Absolutely. Have we seen this type of, of reaction from him before? Yes. And you will again because he pushes back. He fights back when he feels like he's attacked. And what, what Mr. Cummings said this week was wrong. So is there an investigation being launched? into the president says investigate this corrupt mess immediately oh no he's calling on congress to do it congress over does oversight so my guess is no because mr cummings is in charge of the oversight committee keep in mind i think i think maryland is the richest state on a per capita or per household basis in the nation yet they have real abject poverty in in baltimore i think the president wants folks to to know that look instead of dealing with those issues mr cummings is spending all of his time on this impeachment inquiry uh which is we all know is going nowhere so it's the the 
Democrats have a chance to actually focus on things that matter. Instead, they're working on scandal. And I think the president is doing everything he can to highlight that. Well, you know, though, that this is a majority black district. And mm-hmm. when the president calls it rat infested, he says no human being would live there. Do you understand that that is offensive to the Americans who do live there? I understand that everything that Donald Trump says is offensive to some people. Keep in mind, uh, about two weeks ago, the president said things that were critical of AOC and her squad and was immediately accused of being a racist. A couple days later, Nancy Pelosi said some things critical of that same group of people, and she was defended by the media and by folks on the left for not being racist. When Donald Trump... No human being would want to live there. When Donald Trump attacks people... This is being perceived as racist. Do you understand why? I understand why, but that doesn't mean that it's racist. The president is pushing back against what he sees as wrong. It's how he's done in the past, and he'll continue to do in the future. So you think this is just hyperbolic? I absolutely do. And I hope the folks actually pay attention to it and realize what Democrats in Congress are doing. Instead of helping people back home, they're focusing on scandal in Washington, D.C., which is the exact opposite of what they said they would do when they ran for election in 2018. Let's talk about what the White House is doing. Uh, Why hasn't the White House gotten behind a single bill to improve election security? You saw the Senate Intelligence Committee come out with a bipartisan agreement and recommendations warning that Russia continues to interfere. Why doesn't the White House want to do everything possible? Yeah, I'm sorry I pushed back, but your facts are not right. We actually signed in 2018 the cybersecurity and infrastructure security bill that added the CISA to DHS to do exactly what you've just so talked about. So the two bills that were put forward and that the Republican leader has said don't need to be considered, you think everything is sufficient to Completely this point? Completely unnecessary. It deals with paper ballots. There's a lot of things on how to register to vote. It's, it's, face it, it was a bill that came up in the last week because the Democrats saw an opportunity coming out of the Mueller investigation to not talk about what Mueller said about, uh, about collusion and obstruction and instead wanted to focus on election security and ignore the fact that the parties have already worked together to do a great deal on election security. This administration has worked with every single state, 1,700 different localities who run elections. We've done tabletop exercises. We go visits. We've met with every single presidential campaign to go over how to prepare against and prevent uh, foreign intervention into the 2020 elections. We're doing everything necessary to do this. The bills from this week were simply showmanship, and that's why they, uh, that's why they failed. I understand you're arguing the measures have been sufficient, but that bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee says they're not and made recommendations to do more, including that the U.S. should communicate to adversaries that it will view an attack on its election infrastructure as a hostile act and we will respond accordingly. This was President Trump when he met with Vladimir Putin last month. He appears to be laughing it off. Do you think that is sufficient? Uh, do I think it's sufficient? I won't, I won't answer that because I was there for that, and we did talk about it afterwards when the cameras went away. So the president did, did raise the topic with Mr. Putin. We take this very seriously. Again, judge us by the actions. Judge us, by the way, in comparison to what the Obama administration did in 2014 and 2015 going into the 2016 elections when they had information that the Russians were trying to interfere. And Susan Rice, then the national security advisor, I think, gave the instruction to stand down on dealing with foreign intervention in our elections. So we're happy to be judged by the actions because we think we're taking tremendous steps to preserve uh, election integrity. I want to ask you about the budget. The White House cut a budget deal with Democrats that Democrats liked and many Republicans did not. In fact, your former Freedom Caucus colleague, Mark Meadows, wrote the following. This is a bad deal for the president. It's a bad deal for conservatives. Most importantly, it's a bad deal for the forgotten men and women who voted to shake up Washington, D.C. when they sent President Trump to the White House. This is not draining the swamp. It's feeding the swamp and entrenching the status quo. Why didn't the White House demand spending cuts? Uh, Because we were never going to get them. Keep in mind that Democrats won the election for the House in 2018. You can do what's possible in Washington, D.C. When the Democrats won the House, the chances of us passing a budget deal that we're going to satisfy my friends and colleagues in the Freedom Caucus went to practically zero. Elections do have consequences. So President Trump has given up any promise of balancing the budget at any point? Well, our budget still, if if Congress would take our budget, they would still have a chance to do that. But the Congress and media fall over themselves to say how every president's budget is dead on arrival. If they would like to know how we would spend money if we were in charge of the spending process, they can go to our budget. 
budget. We are not in charge of the spending progress process. Congress is. What we got in exchange for those higher levels of spending, and yes, we spent more money than we would if we left our own devices. We did get more money for defense. We got more money for the VA. And we protected a lot of the conservative Republican policies that are hardwired into these spending bills. Democrats wanted to undo the protections we had had on life. They wanted to undo some of the things we were doing on the border for border security. They wanted to undo a lot of our regulatory, our deregulatory agenda. And we prevented that from happening. Did we spend more than we wanted? to? Yes. Did we get a lot in return? Yes, we did. I want to ask you about this deal, the U.S. and Guatemala, Guatemala cut, mm-hmm. a safe third country agreement. Um, it essentially asks Guatemala, which is one of the poorest countries in this hemisphere, to accept refugees and some of the most vulnerable and claim asylum there instead of the United States. How can they afford to do that if the United States isn't increasing aid well, to we, allow them to? We can help them. Listen, I think what you saw this week... The U.S. Week, is promising Well, I think what aid. you saw this week was a warming of the relationship. We've, we've struggled with Guatemala the last couple of weeks and months as, as they were not helping us with their own border security. We've had the same discussions with Mexico. But I thought we had a very, very productive week. And what we're saying is, if you're leaving El Salvador... Okay. And you get, and you're leaving because you want asylum, that you can claim asylum and should claim asylum in the first country that is safe to you. It doesn't mean it's wealthy. It doesn't mean you're going to do great. It means you are safe. That's but this the basis. is also one of the three countries that people are fleeing from. The majority of migrants are coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. So you're asking one of those countries people are fleeing from to give safe haven. They are fleeing for economic reasons, and then they are claiming asylum here. Economics are not a valid reason under international law for asylum. So if you do leave El Salvador and you're saying you are being persecuted, you're threatened with death, you're at risk, you get to Honduras, you get to, uh, you get to Guatemala, it may not be the wealthiest country in the world, but you are safe, and that is the basis for asylum. Keep in mind, this was, this was a major uh, development this week. We really do think it's going to help. It's going to supplement what we did with Mexico a couple weeks ago. The bottom line is we're having more success with Guatemala, more success with Mexico at helping us on the southern border than we are with the Democrats on the House who are still spending all of their time on impeachment. In fact, I think they just announced their five or six week vacation, what they're going to talk about every week when they're gone. And not a single week is dedicated to to border security or immigration reform, Uh, a complete lapse of responsibility. Mick Mulvaney, good to have you here. It's good to be here. We go now to the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, Virginia Senator Mark Warner. He joins us from King George, Virginia. Good to have you with us, Senator. Uh, Mick Mulvaney says the White House has taken steps to uh, improve election security. Why do you think that's insufficient? Well, respectfully, I disagree with Mick. Uh, We did do a better job in 2018, but don't take my word for it. Take Special Prosecutor Mueller, who said the Russians are attacking us, literally every day. Take the president's own FBI director, Chris Wray. Take the president's own director of national intelligence, who all warned that the Russians will be back. And I think there's some common sense things that would get 75 votes if they could get to the floor of the Senate. For example, if a If the Kremlin or a foreign government tries to intervene and offer you dirt on an opponent, the obligation ought to be not to say thank you, as the president uh, floated a month or so ago, but the obligation ought to be tell the FBI. Let's make sure, secondly, that every polling station in America has a paper ballot backup. So in case that machine was hacked into, the integrity of your votes will still be counted. And third, let's make sure we've got some rules of the road for Facebook, Twitter, Google, social media, so there's not the ability to have foreign agents and bots manipulate Americans. Let's have appropriate disclosure. Let's have privacy. And candidly, this administration has stopped every election security legislation from coming to the floor, and they've been supported in that effort by the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. I want to read from uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee report that you were part of releasing, and it was bipartisan. Uh, It said Russia likely targeted election infrastructure in all 50 states. The first known breach was in July 2016 in Illinois, where Russian cyber actors scanned state election systems. They were in a position to delete or change voter data. The report does say some progress has been made, but the threat is imperfectly understood. Given the level of detail that you have seen, how secure do you think America's election actually is? Well, DHS has upped its game. I'll give them credit there. But what we're hearing from attorney generals and secretary of states across the country is they need more help. 
what we're hearing is that there needs to be that paper ballot backup. Well, who could be against that? What we are hearing is the manipulation they're using through Facebook and Twitter in, in the fake bot accounts is something that pits American against American. And I just don't get why this president wouldn't be willing to say, let's make sure that our elections are secure in 2020. We saw it was the Russians last time, but this playbook is now out there and other adversaries, Iran and others, could use exactly these same tools going forward. As you mentioned, special counsel Robert Mueller did testify this week. He spoke about the threat from Russia. He also spoke about the entire uh, report that he put together over two years. And now the House Judiciary Chairman uh, Jerry Nadler is talking about trying to get evidence that the special counsel had gathered. Uh, Some of this requires potentially going down the impeachment proceeding route. What do you think is actually achieved by getting a hold of some of this material? Do Democrats need it? Well, I think the Speaker Speaker Pelosi has actually managed this uh, pretty well. I'm less focused on relitigating 2016, more focused on trying to make sure our elections are safe in 2020. But I, I, one of the things are, and I'm very proud of the fact that the Senate Intelligence Committee is the only bipartisan entity two and a half years later that is hung together, continues our investigation. And what we So you need wouldn't want is or need what this we information need, what from we Mueller? Need, Margaret, what we need is the counterintelligence evidence. Because our investigation is a counterintelligence investigation, the counterintelligence evidence that Mueller had so that we can better lay out to the American people how we can protect ourselves going forward. Because clearly uh, the Russians track record in 2016, not only in America, but in other nations where they've tried to intervene in the democratic process is effective, it's cheap, and they'll be back. What do you think was accomplished by having the special counsel testify this week? Do you think that it politically backfired for Democrats, particularly those who want to go ahead with impeachment? I'll, I'll let the commentators make the judgment there. I think the more that I think Mueller was effective at laying out the four corners of the report. I think the report in many ways does speak for itself, particularly about the ongoing threat. I mean, Americans need to realize our our democracy. Again, I don't care whether you're a Trump supporter or a Trump opponent, but all of us across the political spectrum should be concerned when foreign nations try to tip the balance in our democratic process to whatever candidate. We all ought to be concerned when foreign government agents uses the internet to try to misrepresent themselves as Americans and pit each other against, pit one American against the other. And we need to do more to be protected in 2020. You repeatedly state in the report that there was no evidence that actual votes were changed. But it also says that the committee and the intelligence community's insight is pretty limited. So how confident can you actually be, can America be, that its democracy wasn't altered? Well, I think what the Russians did in 2016 was they were basically trying to, you know, jiggle the windows or try to open the doors. And they found when they went into our voting systems that we were horribly unprotected. And in many ways, I think we were lucky uh, that they didn't take advantage of some of the opportunities that we pointed out in our report. I don't think we can count on ourselves being lucky again in 2020. And in many cases, what a foreign government can do. They don't need to change vote totals. If they simply move thousands of people from one precinct to another, you would have chaos mm-hmm. on election day. And one of the reasons why I think we also need to go not only at the voting districts, but there are three companies that control 90 percent of all right. the voter files in this country. We need to make sure those companies have appropriate security in place as well. Are you going to vote for this budget deal this week? Listen, I'm glad we're not going to have uh, anybody trying to bring down the full faith and credit of the United States of America. I'm glad that the military and key uh, domestic spending programs around education got some additional dollars. But I am concerned with a country with $22 trillion in debt that we've added another $2 trillion with this deal. And uh, mm-hmm. at some point, leaving our kids with that kind of balance sheet doesn't make sense. So I'm still evaluating it. No decision yet. Thank you very much, Senator Warner. No decision yet. We'll be back with Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. 
Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. We're now joined by former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro, who joins us from Detroit, where this week's primary debate will be held. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, glad to have you here. The president's chief of staff, as you heard him, Mick Mulvaney, uh, said it was just hyperbole when the president describes Baltimore as rodent and rat infested when he says no human being would live there. Do you think it's important for Democrats to respond to this kind of language or is this a, a distraction as Republicans charge? Uh, I absolutely think it's important for us to call it out for what it is, which is uh, racism. Uh, you know, I'm not somebody like a lot of Americans. I'm not somebody that likes to use that term or that is quick to call somebody a racist. I think you have to be very careful before you use that word. Uh, however, this president has shown us time and time again, from the way that he started his campaign to the comments about that Mexican-American judge during the campaign to his failure to immediately condemn white supremacists in Charlottesville in 2018, to just a couple of weeks ago, his comments about uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez uh, and her three colleagues, uh, to just these comments about uh, Representative uh, Cummings and his district, as well as uh, his comments about a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago now, about mm-hmm. John Lewis and his district. There's a pattern here. This guy is the biggest identity politician that we have seen in the last 50 years, and he engages in what's known as racial priming, basically using this language and taking actions to try and get people to move into their camps by racial and ethnic identity. That's how he thinks he won in 2016, and that's how he thinks he's going to win in 2020. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that just a few weeks ago he kicked off his 2020 campaign, and here we are with the same playbook that he used in 2016. But I believe that there are enough people, whether they're white or black or Latino or Asian American, Native American, rich or poor, who share the same values of basic respect and compassion and, and, you know, faith and love of country that are going to bring us together more strongly then he can tear us apart. Uh, I want to ask you about immigration, which you have made um, a part of your campaign, uh, a focus. Uh, When you were mayor of San Antonio, you testified before Congress and you called for increased border security measures um, and you praised the Obama administration's actions. I want to play it. In Texas, we know firsthand that this administration has put more boots on the ground along the border than at any other time in our history which has led to unprecedented success in removing dangerous individuals with criminal records. Why did you praise that policy then, but when the Trump administration adopts similar language and policies, you're hypercritical of them? Oh, I think that's a very, very far stretch, Margaret. Uh, If you listen to what I said in that clip, I talked about... uh, people who had committed serious crimes, dangerous criminals. I haven't changed at all. Uh, If there are people who have committed serious felonies in the United States who are immigrants uh, or who come to the border, I have always consistently said uh, that that those people should be apprehended, that they should be deported. So I haven't changed that at all. What I don't agree with and what's definitely different in this administration uh, is that this administration has weaponized the law to cruelly separate little children from their parents. Like, I've been consistent. I I don't have an issue with maintaining a secure border. We're always going to do that. What I have an issue with is separating little children from their Mm -hmm. parents. Uh, I have an issue with an administration that uses migrants as a scapegoat to create fear and paranoia in order to win elections, and uh, that... Uh, does things like you just talked about on this show, which is to uh, essentially pressure Guatemala to sign an agreement as a safe third country when it's not 
a safe third country. And you're going to now ensure that more of those uh, people who are desperate, who are fleeing desperate circumstances, uh, end up uh, dead. Uh, they end up in even more dire circumstances when it's been the tradition of the United States to actually allow people to make their asylum claims here when they reach a port of entry. And so how are you um, going to how you know, are, you, are you going to use this as a point of attack on the debate stage this week? Well, I think the best way to say that is um, if you had to take a bet of whether Don Lemon or, uh, you know, Dana Bash or uh, Jake Tapper are going to ask a question about immigration, uh, I would say that you probably should bet on that, right? That that issue is going to come up because it's an issue that Americans are thinking about. It's the issue that the president is, mm-hmm. is trying to make the number one issue. Uh, okay. And let me say this. Look, yeah. um, We've just in this campaign, uh, that I'm going to be bold and fearless on this issue and many others. So okay. I'm perfectly willing Thank to you. articulate my vision. Thank you, Julian Castro. We'll be back in a moment. Memories make us laugh and cry, and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, Those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com slash save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. We're back with one of six women candidates for the Democratic nomination. Our guest is the only one who is not a senator or congresswoman, but Marianne Williamson is an author of seven best-selling self-help books. She's also a spiritual advisor. Good morning and welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to pick up with a question I asked some of our other guests, Mm -hmm. which is, is it important for Democrats to respond to tweets like the president has sent about uh, Elijah Cummings, or should you stay focused on issues? Well, first of all, that is an issue, and it's important for every American to respond. You know, Mr. Mulvaney said something very interesting to me on your show. When he was talking about what Elijah Cummings said, why the president came after him, Mr. Mulvaney said what he said was wrong. Now, Mr. Mulvaney did not say what he said was inaccurate, the idea of children sleeping in their own feces, et cetera. He said what, they, what he did was wrong. So really, this is demagoguery. This is beyond, you know, we use words like racism, but we need to understand, and every American needs to understand, the president sends out warning shots. You criticize me, I'm coming after you. That's why many Republicans will not take him on. That's why certain Republicans chose not to even run again. And now he's doing that with someone like the congressman. And I thought that was fascinating. What you did was wrong. It is wrong to come after me. That is how demagogues behave. You uh, are running on a platform with some proposals that involve some massive restructuring of the U.S. government. One of the things you're floating is this idea of creating a department of children. Children and youth, yes. How is this different than what the Education Department does, and what is it that you're actually proposing? Well, the Education Department gets about $68 billion in the budget, and then within HHS, there is also the Agency of Children and uh, Working excuse me, children and families. That gets about $48 billion. Now, education is extremely important, but we have children who are traumatized before they even reach before they even reach preschool. We have a relatively high infant mortality rate. We have problems that go beyond the things that are already covered. We have problems with the fact that children have PTSD. Millions of American children have PTSD that is considered as severe as that of returning veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq. We have millions of American children who go to school every day, elementary school students who are asking their teachers if maybe they have some food for them. We have American children who go to classrooms where there aren't even the adequate school supplies with which 
to teach a child to read. And if the child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the high school graduation uh, a possibility, probability is drastically decreased and the chances of, high, of incarceration are drastically increased. So we need a holistic perspective. We need more than just educational funding. We need wraparound services. We need trauma-informed education. We need to deal with the nutrition of our children, the high poverty rates, the, the violence in our schools, the, the trauma-informed education. There are so many issues for the whole child that need to be addressed. I'm sorry. So when it comes, though, to even public education, not even the level of social services you're talking about, a lot of this is controlled at the state level. So how do you get Republican-governed states in particular to agree to fund everything you're laying out here and to actually implement. Well, let's talk about that. The truth of the matter is we are the only advanced industrialized nation that bases our educational funding on property taxes. So what this means is that a child in a in a financially advantaged neighborhood stands a chance, a good chance of getting a very high quality public school education here. But if a child does not grow up not live in a in a financially advantaged neighborhood, then the opportunities are far less for a higher quality education. So how would you fund it? There should be a federal mandate. Two things are going on here. Some states have the money to do better, and they choose not to. Some states simply do not have the money. To me, this should be a federal mandate. Every When I'm president, if I'm president, the idea is that every school in America should be a palace of learning and culture and the arts. This is the way to create a peaceful society and a prosperous society years from now. And that's what we should be doing. Senator Kamala Harris says she wants to pay teachers more, a $13,500 raise over four years. Is that the dollar amount you're looking for? I'm not looking at a specific dollar amount, but I certainly agree with the senator that we need to pay teachers a lot more. But you know what? That's that's one out of so many things that need to be changed. That's just one one thing. We have to talk about about what even happens in these children's lives before they even get to school. also want to feel that the high stakes uh, standardized testings are not are not helpful at this point. But we have to deal with so much more than as important as it is that we pay our teachers more, which is extremely important. We have to look at the whole issue of how American America basically neglects millions of chronically traumatized children every single day. You mentioned health. Uh, you have clarified in recent days that your position is not one of an anti-vaxxer. Well, there are people who say, well, what's happening in the world today is that anybody who has any kind of conversation that is not towing the line with big pharma is called an anti-vaxxer. I am pro-vaccine. I am pro-medicine. And I also find the fact that... And you don't object to antidepressants either. You've clarified that. No, if people want to use antidepressants. And I do not like the predatory practices of big pharma. And I don't know why people, when we are seeing what's going on now with the opioid crisis, Mm -hmm. where attorney generals all over this country country are now indicting these big pharmaceutical executives for what we now know to have been their role in the opioid crisis. I find it so odd that people are just assuming that in every other area, they're just the paragons of pure intent and concern for the common good. As commander in chief, what do you think America's role in the world should be? Moral leadership. Our grandparents would be rolling over in their graves to see something like, for instance, for the sake of a $350 billion arms deal over the next 10 years, We are giving aerial support to a genocidal war that Saudi Arabia is waging against Yemen. Tens of thousands of people have been starved, including children. Now, I'm not saying that America was ever perfect, but there was a time on this planet when other nations and Americans ourselves saw that when it came to international policy, we at least tried to stand for democracy and humanitarian. It's not just about cutting funding to military. I want the military to have whatever it needs for legitimate security purposes. My critique is of political decisions that have more to do with short-term profit maximization for defense contractors. We need Mm -hmm. to wage peace. Even Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense, under, under George Bush said we must also wage peace, mm-hmm. which is why I want a U.S. Department of Peace. We need to far, uh, far uh, okay. beef up and, and support far more our peace-building agencies within the State Department. Well, we'll hear more about that on the debate stage this week, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we will be right back with our political panel. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, 
offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We now turn to our political panel for some analysis. Michael Crowley is a White House correspondent for The New York Times. Eliana Johnson covers the White House for Politico. Joel Payne is a Democratic strategist, and he appears frequently on our digital network, CBSN. And Ed O'Keefe also appears frequently on all CBS networks. We keep him very busy. He is our political correspondent here at CBS News. Uh, Joel, I want to start with you. Um, The president sent 13 tweets in 24 hours about Congressman Elijah Cummings. It changes the news cycle. It forces the question to be asked of all Democratic candidates, how they respond. Uh, What does this mean politically on the campaign trail when the conversation comes back to these divisive issues that are often perceived as being about race? Well, it's certainly distractive, and I think it forces all of the candidates to, you know, kind of have this come-to-Jesus moment about whether or not the president is racist. That's the question that everybody likes to ask, which I actually think... It's rather obvious. You can kind of look into the president's soul when you look at his, at his Twitter platform or his Twitter, Twitter stream. But the bigger point here is the president is talking about things that normally are reserved for, you know, things at the far flung reaches of the party. Uh, people who are political advisors who are nameless like Lee Atwater or regional politicians like Jesse Helms. We really in the modern era have not had a president who's spoken like this. And the challenge it creates for Democrats, particularly when you're looking at things like impeachment and when you're looking at all of the other things that the Democratic Party is contending with, is whether or not they are going to challenge this president in a way that's going to be satiating to their base. And does it replicate in some way this conversation from 2016 about labeling people, the deplorables moments, what I'm thinking about with Hillary Clinton, when the conversation turns to the president's language being racist, do people internalize that and say, well, I'm with him because I think I'm being well, yeah, called a racist? Totally. And that's and that's the risk they run in spending too much time talking about the president's words and intent. And, and it's why so many of these Democratic presidential candidates, just like Democratic lawmakers and Republican lawmakers, for that matter, are frustrated by this because they don't want to necessarily have to answer for everything he says. And that is going to be continue to be the real challenge for Democrats out there. Do you talk about him and what he's doing and saying, what he's trying to do and say, or do you try to focus on what you would be for if you are the Democratic nominee? It worked for Democrats last year running for Congress. Let's see if Democrats running for president can, can remain just as focused on everything else with whatever he's doing sort of being the constant that's always there, the elephant in the room that everybody knows about. Uh, and and it's, real, it's real tricky. We've seen some frustration from some of these candidates. I still remember what Amy Klobuchar said a few weeks ago. He does this to distract you, and she pointed at reporters, from talking about the issues we are trying to raise on the trail, health care, uh, education funding, you know, all these other issues. And she has a point. Mm-hmm. Eliana, how is the Trump campaign feeling about all of this? I mean, we had some economic numbers this week. You saw GDP actually come down it's about 2.1 percent, less than many had predicted. Is there some softening or is there a reason for worry that would cause the need for a distraction? Or is this just the president popping off. Look, the the one single thing that could really cause alarm in the Trump campaign is a downturn in the economy. A one-off statistic, uh, an economic downturn over one month, is not enough cause for alarm, but a persistent trend in that direction certainly is. So we're not there yet. Uh, I don't think you can link it to the president's comments. Uh, However, I do think the president's comments are uh, something of a strategy. They serve dual purposes. Uh, The comments directed at Cummings are a a pushback on oversight. Uh, They originated from an African-American Republican operative appearing on Fox News in a discussion about uh, Elijah Cummings' role in oversight of what's happening at the border. So the president is saying this oversight is illegitimate, and it's also a way to animate both his base and part of a uh, 
sort of uh, long shot attempt to gin up uh, uh, African-American voters by saying uh, this person who served in Congress for over three decades is more focused on uh, investigating the president than he is on serving his own district. That's at the very least the argument that the president's making. And what is happening inside the White House around this, Michael? I mean, you heard the chief of staff saying none of this is racist. He understands why it's being interpreted that way. Uh, But it's the president rejecting, basically, he says, illegitimate attempts at oversight. Yeah, well, I think it's very reactive, as has been the case throughout the Trump presidency. We know specifically on the tweets about AOC and Ilan Omar and the squad a week or two ago that White House aides did not see those tweets coming. I don't know specifically about the Cummings tweets. And there was a plan to try to get the president to dial them back and to say that they had been misinterpreted. And instead, the president doubled down. And to the extent that the White House was trying to put some kind of a strategy around these tweets, the president didn't want to follow it. So I think as we've seen throughout this presidency, Trump is there basically in the residence frequently. Eliana, with a useful reminder, watching Fox News, responding to Fox News, that you almost can't exa- overstate how much his public commentary is driven by what he's seeing on Fox and Friends, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity's show. It's just an astounding phenomenon. And his aides are just trying to kind of reverse engineer from the tweets that they see. What did he mean? What's the strategy here? And then when they try to put some kind of strategy together for the second day, the president ignores it. Can, can I add to, you know, I think that there's this popular thought that this is a part of some supercharged strategy, the strategy to supercharge the base, to get the president's base excited. I don't know if the proof is there for that. You know, I looked at a recent Fox poll that said he had an 87 percent approval rating with Republicans. I looked at Mitt Romney's approval rating from 2012 when he was he was the Republican standard bearer. He was also at 87 percent. So I don't know if there's any proof that this Republican Party is more loyal to Donald Trump than other Republicans have been. I think there is standard loyalty to the Republican standard bearer. But I don't know if this strategy is working and it's actually pushing away moderates, it's pushing away swing voters. And you've seen three House Republican retirements this week. I wonder how much that's linked to the president's language of late. I think there's some truth to that. You know, I, I don't think there's strategy, but I think there's instinct with Trump. And I think his his instincts are often politically savvy. Um, and I, I think your point on Romney misses something in that uh, Romney was a conventional Republican who Republicans, the party followed to do conventional things. And I think the thing that's caught people's attention about Trump is that the Republican Party has followed him just uh, and stuck behind him to far more unconventional, outrageous uh, places that I think the country never really thought that uh, the party and uh, politicians would follow uh, somebody who had never been in politics before. Ed, tell me where the Democratic Party is headed this week with this round of debates. Uh, it's, it's a big moment. I think anyone who doesn't think these things matter should look at uh, surveys taken in the last month since the first debates. Were we talking as much about Julian Castro or Kamala Harris a month ago before those debates? No, they had very good performances. Were the doubts about Elizabeth Warren's viability still there? Yes, and they've been somewhat diminished uh, because of the powerful performance she gave. So you have two interesting setups this week. You have to focus on the two people at the middle of the stage, probably most of all. Tuesday night, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, essentially, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in arms when it comes to sort of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and the ideas they're trying to push? Do they go after each other? And how much incoming do they take from the lesser known moderates on stage with them that are trying to break into that top tier and hoping that they get a moment that buys them time into September? And then, of course, Wednesday night, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, round two. Uh, Those of us who watch politics will pop extra popcorn for that one, probably, because (laughs) you wonder where that goes. Uh, The other X factor in that, of course, is Cory Booker, the New Jersey senator who still can't find any traction but continues to be the guy that starts fights with the vice president and and sort of forces conversation about some issues from the Veep's past. So uh, definitely a critical moment. And remember, the stakes are raised now going from July to September. Mm-hmm. you got to hit higher polling thresholds, higher fundraising thresholds. So those that are struggling have to use Tuesday or Wednesday night to make that happen. Joel, did having special counsel Robert Mueller testify this week backfire for Democrats? I think that's going to be a popular thought. And, you know, listen, it's that old thing. If you listen to a debate on the radio, you you might think that Democrats won on the points. But if you watched it in this era of Trump politics, this political theater, uh, the special counsel did not necessarily perform quite as well. I think the real takeaway for me is that 
The second happiest person in Washington after the president might be Speaker Pelosi. And it's because her thought, her way of approaching impeachment probably wins out the week because now her caucus is a little bit more chastened in terms of their thought about moving forward with impeachment. We even saw Adam Schiff earlier this week said that it's very likely the only way to remove the president from office is at the ballot box, not through impeachment. And I think that that's significant for the speaker. Eliana, there was some reporting in The Washington Post uh, writing about Robert Mueller, who is 74, 75 years old. He is a, a peer of the president, but it was suggesting that there were real doubts and conversations behind the scenes about whether he was up for it, for the kind of questioning that he endured. Is this a below-the-belt hit on a public servant, or is this a legitimate question? I don't think it's below the belt, and I I think it's the job of reporters to bring out to the public the stuff that we reporters are privy to uh, behind the scenes here in Washington. And those are the things that Mueller allies had been saying in green rooms and in the hallways of Congress. And I think uh, it was important for the public to know that these are things, and and it would have been fair had Mueller been 64 or 54 or 44. Um, He happens to be 74, but these are the things that had been a real concern. Yes, they'd been uh, whispered by his critics with some glee, but also the people close to Mueller had expressed real concerns that uh, he was not up to this testimony. And I think uh, I think the American public saw that bear out um, that uh, on all day on Wednesday. It was, it was pretty painful. Michael, the president said he had a few wins this week on the immigration front. But one of the things he also counted as a win was what happened overseas. Yeah. Boris Johnson uh, ascending to become the prime minister of the U.K. He's described him as resembling himself. That's right. That's right. Well, this is going to be an amazing relationship to watch. Um, in some ways, these men are very different. I mean, Boris Johnson is um, a classical scholar, erudite, uh, uh, wrote a, a biography of Winston Churchill, um, loves to quote, you know, great literature, um, a pretty different approach uh, than the president. At the same time, these men are both entertainers who have put their fingers on something in the pulse of our political moment in the world right now, which is a kind of populism, a kind of anything goes style. Uh, Boris Johnson sort of gleefully used the word dude uh, in his uh, in his first public speech, um, kind of breaking the old rules and projecting a, a sort of authenticity that people seem to be craving. Um, I think it's hard to know exactly substantively how this relationship works out, although we'll I will say it. the special relationship is probably going to improve. We will be watching it and we will be back in a moment. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. As tensions with Iran escalate, CBS News national security correspondent David Martin got rare access to U.S. troops serving in the Middle East. He spent 10 days with the top U.S. commander in the region, General Frank McKenzie. David's report begins at Prince Sultan Air Base in Saudi Arabia. Traveling with General Frank McKenzie, the top U.S. commander for the Middle East, was a journey across a landscape of past, present, and potentially future conflict. At an airbase in the middle of Saudi Arabia, 500 American troops, protected by a battery of Patriot air defense missiles, are laying the groundwork for the worst-case scenario against Iran. It looks like this is the beginning of 
preparations for if these tensions turn into a war? Well, I'd prefer to say it's like this. It's a signal that we're not going to be cowed by Iranian malign activities. I had been here before, in 1990, on the eve of the first Gulf War, when this base was chock-a-block with American warplanes ready to put out the lights in Baghdad. Now, nearly 30 years later, Mackenzie was taking the first steps in another buildup, only this time to put out the lights in Tehran. How many planes could you bring in here? Uh, there have been a lot of planes here in the past. I won't get into exact details, but you could bring as many as you want. It hasn't come to that yet, but the U.S. and Iran remain on a collision course. Within the space of two days, as Mackenzie flew over the Persian Gulf to Afghanistan, the USS Boxer took down two Iranian drones that came too close, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards hijacked a British tanker. She was fired upon, subsequently boarded, taken under Iranian custody, and is now deep in Iranian territorial waters. Exactly the kind of incidents that could spiral out of control. So Mackenzie cut short his visit to Afghanistan, where 14,000 American troops are still fighting America's longest war, and flew to Qatar, where the U.S. has built state-of-the-art command centers to run these seemingly forever wars. General McKenzie is the top military commander, not just for the war in Afghanistan, but for Iraq and Syria as well. But 10 days of getting on and off airplanes with him has made it very clear his number one mission is war with Iran. How to head it off, and failing that, how to fight it. Next, McKenzie flew to a desert base in southern Syria in a scene straight out of a Mad Max movie. Those American special forces are part of the 1,000 U.S. troops still here, hunting down the remnants of ISIS. Not by coincidence, this base also sits astride the main land route which connects Iran to its Syrian allies in Damascus. We're standing in the middle of the Damascus-Baghdad highway, and the base is right in the middle of it, so certainly it blocks a, a major channel of communication. E-22 Ospreys carried us out of Syria, in-flight refueling required, for a visit to the Boxer, which had taken down those Iranian drones. Nobody wants war, but as Captain Ron Dowdell told us, the Boxer is already counting its kills. So I expected to see the silhouette of a drone painted on your bridge. How come it's not there? Wait till we get in port. (laughs) Our thanks to David and CBS News cameraman Tony Furlow for their reporting. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. And if you miss the broadcast on television, Face the Nation can always be seen on CBS All Access, our network's digital subscription, video on demand, and live streaming service. You can download the app for both CBS News and CBS All Access on our website at facethenation.com. Replays are also on our digital network, CBSN. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Senate Intelligence Committee Vice Chairman Mark Warner, and 2020 presidential candidates Julian Castro and Marianne Williamson. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. 
Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.